Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Someone's excited. All right, we're going to be in the book of Luke this morning, chapter 18, starting in verse 9, picking up where we left off from from last week. Pastor Sean sends his regards, of course. He is enjoying some much-needed vacation, so I am filling in for him uh, this morning. woke up this morning singing this song, or maybe thinking this song, by Mac Davis. You woke up and you started singing, Oh Lord... It's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. And it goes on and on, much the same. You know, it's kind of a humorous song that Mac Davis sung back in the the 70s, so it's older than I am. Um, But it does touch on that impulse of the human heart, which is to be proud and haughty. So Pew Research, not too long ago, did some, uh, did some digging into American high school students. And they were trying to see like academic performance of high school students compared to the rest of the world. And American students, compared to the rest of the world, are about in the middle of the pack in terms of math, science, and reading, sometimes maybe even uh, lagging behind in some different areas. But there was one thing that American students, high school students, were doing very well in, and that was self-confidence. So I suppose, according to this research then, we have a nation of, of I guess we would say, self-assured ignorance in our, in our high schools. Nathan Harden kind of compiled some other data. He was a writer. He coined this less politically correct version of it, says that we have a bunch of high school students that are confident idiots. Our students might not know much, but they sure do feel good about themselves. You see, pride is an age-old problem. It's the first of the deadly sins. It's very sneaky and subtle at times. And this morning, in this parable, we're going to see one of the most subtle, insipid versions of this, which is self-righteousness. Pride is an evil, and it often blinds the person who has it. So we're going to read this parable as spoken by Jesus in Luke 18, picking up in verse 9. He, that would be Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man 
went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke comments for us the setting of this parable. Jesus directs this parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, or you may have heard it, the Pharisee and the publican. He is directing it to those who are, in his words in verse 9, trusting in themselves to be justified before a holy God. These people think that they are good enough, and they look down and treat others with contempt. So Jesus gives this parable to them. And so, to that end, we could summarize what Jesus is intending with this parable in this sentence, which is that God hears the humble and humiliates the haughty. So God hears the humble and humiliates the haughty. So we're going to explore this parable this morning in the two characters that Jesus gives us, the first one being, of course, the Pharisee, and the second one, the tax collector. So our first character we're going to look at is the Pharisee and his self-righteousness. See, these two characters, they go up to the temple to pray. So if you think about the geography of Jerusalem, the temple was up on the Temple Mount. So to go to the temple meant that you had to go up. And so on their way up to the temple, they are both praying out loud. And they're these Pharisee and this tax collector. So we're going to look at three aspects of this Pharisee's prayer. The first thing is that the Pharisee, he prays to himself. Note all the repetitions of I. Starting in, in verse 11 there. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Verse 12, I fast. I give tithes of all that I get. So who is he praying about? He's praying it. It's all about me. It's interesting. You, your, your Bible may even have a footnote on verse 11 that it says... Our translations, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Some, uh, another rendi uh, rendition or translation of this would be standing prayed to himself. So for the words of this prayer, it kind of makes sense because God doesn't really factor much to his prayer. And in this culture, we're not praying silently. Like silent prayer isn't really a thing, so you often would pray out loud, usually kind of quietly to yourself. But this Pharisee, I don't get the sense is praying quietly. So he's the, the me monster. You know, he's going up to the temple, and it's all about me. And he reminds me of the, the me monster at, at the party. So you guys probably all know this person, right? No matter what story you have, they always have a better one. Whatever pain you've endured, they've had more. You know, whatever, uh, whatever you did at the job, they did it better. And so on. They're almost insufferable, these kinds of me monsters that we happen to know at those different conversation uh, in those different conversations. See, this Pharisee's main concern is to extol and exonerate himself. God doesn't play any role in his prayer. He's praying about himself because this is what pride does. Pride inflates our view of ourself and deflates our view of God. So it inflates our view of ourselves and it deflates our view of God. It's kind of like having a balloon in front of your eyes. If pride it would be that balloon... The more that you have, it's going to increase and block your, more and more of your vision so that you're not actually seeing what is the case. And that's what we have with pride. So that this Pharisee here, he's inflating his view of himself, and he sees little to nothing of God. There are, of course, multiple warnings in Scripture against pride. 
The book of Proverbs is full of them. Here's just a few of them. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Do you see a person who is wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And our last one, Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Number one, haughty eyes. See, God hates pride. He detests pride and would kill it. Almost all of sin has its root in pride. Sin and pride has us seeing ourselves of greater importance than we really are. And we're warned in Isaiah 2.12, Isaiah says this, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. See, God will judge a person's pride. He will pop that balloon of pride that we have built up. And he closes that parable with that statement, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. God will humiliate those that have an inflated view of themselves. So the first part of our Pharisee's prayer that we should notice is his, his pride. So what's the second part? Well, the second part is that the Pharisee compares. The Pharisee can only see himself as righteous when he looks around and compares himself to other people. So if you look at your text in verse 11, he's thanking God that he's not like other men. And then he begins to list some of them. People like extortioners, unjust, unjust people, adulterers, or even that dirty, rotten tax collector that's over there. See, we can be a lot like the Pharisee if we're honest with ourselves. We often look around at other people and judge our righteousness based upon them. You're like, you know, I, I may have made some mistakes, but I'm not as bad as that other guy. That's the really bad person. Not me. It's that guy down the street. So we often think that, you know, we're pretty good, but, you know, that person down the street, they're worse than I am. See, that self-righteous Pharisee, kind of like us sometimes, looks horizontally at other people rather than vertically to God. Are we comparing our own righteousness to others or to God's standards? See, that's the trap of comparison, because it blinds us to our true nature. We can think of ourselves as good in comparison to other imperfect human beings. We might look good only on a human level, but compared to God, we're miles away. I think it's interesting in the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, there's this story that is recounted by Luke. There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, what was going on is that these, these uh, Galileans who had died and their blood had got mixed, they were like, oh man, they must have been worse sinners than the rest of us. And Jesus' point is like, no, it has nothing to do with your sin. You need to concern yourself with, with your sin, not their sin. See, I remember uh, as an example in high school, I was pretty assured about how smart I was. I felt pretty intelligent. Um, I, I think I was like second or third in my class, so I felt pretty good about that. And so I went to college thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm, things are going to go pretty well for me. 
Then I had my first intro to philosophy class. And I remember my professor talking with about four or five other students and me sitting in the back of the class having no idea what was going on. It's like, you guys are using English, but I don't understand a single word that you guys are saying. So I thank, thankfully, I thank God that he humbled my pride of my intelligence because it made me realize I was a big fish in a small pond and now I am a small fish. So the point is, we like to compare ourselves to others when we come up on top, right? If we are not going to come up on top, then we don't like comparison as much, but we tend to like to do it when we know we're going to be better than another person. And, and we often, when it comes to our sin, of course, we're not going to look at God's standard, but other people and what they are doing. Pharisee, in this parable, he's only righteous because he sees himself as better than other people. And he judges himself as perfect. No, you know, I can recall um, when I was in small groups in college, we would have, I don't, it was unspoken, but they were competitions regarding prayer. And we wouldn't call it a competition, but that's what it was. The more religious you were, the longer lasting, the more spiritual vocabulary, and the more impressive you would try to make your prayer. And so, you know, and, and that was the real spiritual person, you know, that, that guy who really had that amazing prayer. Afterwards, you know, after a couple of years, you began to realize we really weren't praying to God. We were praying to impress each other. It had nothing to do with prayer. It was all about trying to impress other people. You see, that's one of the dangers of, self, of self-righteousness. It's very slippery. It can be subtle, deceptive at times. We have to constantly watch our hearts and ask if we are practicing our righteousness to be seen by God or to be seen by others. So are we, are you, comparing your righteousness to others? The third thing that we see about our Pharisee's self-righteousness in this parable is that he begins to recount his righteous deeds. The Pharisee declares, and we read here in verse 12, that he fasts twice a week and he gives tithes of all that he gets. In Israel, in the Old, uh, in the old Covenant, you only had to fast twice a year. You only had to fast twice a year, so he's like, I do it twice a week. You know, I know you said only twice, twice a year, God, but I'm doing it twice a week. So 100 times what you have required. And I only have to uh, tithe on certain things, but I'm tithing on everything. You know, don't you see how good of a guy I am, God? Hey, look over here. here. I'm really, really good. See, he's not really doing those things for God, but for him himself. He should have kept in mind a warning in a something that God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah in 64, 6. Isaiah says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. You see, external actions done without, uh, for ourselves have no benefit. It's no reward for the person who performs them. Which is why Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. See, we don't do our righteous deeds as a believer so that we can feel good about ourselves, but we do them because out of our gratitude to God, to glorify Him. So for you, when you are doing what you know to be right, are you doing it for yourself to be seen by others, or are you doing it to glorify God alone? 
See, our Pharisee pursued righteousness for his own sake, not for God's glory. So what might be some modern-day equivalents? Maybe you're not fasting twice a week and, and tithing everything you have, but what might be some of our modern-day equivalents? Well, perhaps it th- you might think, I'm a pretty good Christian because, you know, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I act ethically, I'm generally honest at work, I don't cheat on my taxes, so I'm pretty good. See, Jesus is pointing out to us in this parable that our righteous deeds, if we're trusting in our righteous deeds, they amount to nothing before holy, a holy God standard of righteousness. We could make some extra points here, I think, on, on the self-righteousness on, on this Pharisee, which is this, that it's blinding. You can see in this, of, uh, when we read this parable, just how blinding the, the Pharisee is. He has no idea of his need for a Savior right? We don't need God when we have ourselves. I can trust in my own deeds. I can trust in my own works to get my way to God. You know, I remember this uh, when I was a teenager. My church, it's probably been a long time since we've done anything like this, but we were doing a door-to-door evangelism. And I recall this one uh, middle-aged gentleman, we we knocked on his door, uh, me and an adult, and we began to share the gospel with this uh, middle-aged man. And it didn't take long But he began to get uncomfortable with the conversation and as we presented the gospel. And pretty soon, he actually started doing this. You know, you have some really good things to say. You know who needs to hear it? Is that person down the street. They have a really messed up life. They're the one that really needs to hear it. And that really stuck with me because it's just how blind he was. And I remember being frustrated. Like, no, this this is for you. You need to hear this too. But in his mind, he was good enough. So he sent us to somebody else. The second thing about self-righteousness, not only does it blind, it inflates. We become all concerned about ourselves and our own checklist to see how righteous we might happen to be. We can overestimate how good we really are, and we underestimate how bad we are. The third thing is self-righteousness condemns. At the end of the day, it condemns us. Self-righteousness does not save us. It's only enough to send us to hell. Our sin leaves us condemned before a holy God. We're not going to seek a Savior because we think of ourselves as good people. So be warned by looking at this Pharisee. Pride, as expressed in this self-righteousness, is enough to condemn a person to hell. It's a snare and a trap. So we must kill all notions of self-righteousness if we will be saved. And so, to that end, how is it then that we can be saved? We need to look at our second character in this parable, which is the tax collector. Our tax collector, instead of praying about himself, he gives a humble petition. The identity of this character would have shocked Jesus' original audience. We have to remind ourselves about tax collectors. Tax collectors were despised as thieving traitors, thieves because they could charge above what they were required to to kind of line their own pockets, and traitors because they were literally taking money from their own people to send it to Rome. So they were considered the worst of the worst of sinners. So when Jesus puts forward a a tax collector as the the individual that he's like, okay, you need to be like him, it would have have, uh, struck his audience and kind of stunned them. Maybe for us, a closer parallel might be like a billionaire philandering playboy. The point is that we, they, his audience would have been shocked. 
But let's look at this tax collector in more detail in this, in this parable. The first thing to note is who is he praying to? He's not praying to himself. He's praying to God. The Pharisee prays to himself, about himself. The Pharisee addresses his prayer to, to God. He is concerned about his status, his state, before this holy God. He approaches God humbly. You see, for example, he's standing far off. He's like, man, I'm not even worthy to approach this holy God. He's not lifting his eyes up. Instead, they're cast down. He's beating his breast, showing great distress because he knows where he stands before, before God. There's something unique that I find in our prayers that reveals what's going on within our heart. When we look at the Pharisee, we see it's all about him. And now when we look at our, uh, when we look at our tax collector, it's all about God. So what about you this morning? When you pray, what is it that you're praying about? What words are you using? Are you praying to God or are you praying about yourselves? Do we see prayer as a humble address before God or are we using it to kind of, you know, use God as sort of like a genie in the bottle or a vending machine? Solomon would put it this way in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go up to the house of God. To draw near to listen is to better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Solomon reminds me of a principle when it comes towards our words and towards our speech, which is this. Mean what you say and say what you mean. God doesn't, is not impressed with the length of our prayers as much as he's interested in the, quantity, the quality of our prayers. What is it that we're actually praying about? And at the end of the day, who are we trying to fool in our prayers before God? So we're to pray like the tax collector who has an awestruck attitude before God. He knows who he is before a holy, holy God. Now, do we approach God perhaps maybe with too much familiarity? Is he our buddy, a butler, a genie, someone who goes and gets stuff for us when we need it and we have problems? As Solomon and Jesus is reminding us, we have to remember that God is God and we are not. The second thing that we can see about our tax collector is that he knows where he is before a holy God, which is his sinful state. The tax collector, he confesses his sinfulness to God. He doesn't hide it, doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't downplay it. He can, admits and confesses his own sinfulness. To confess means to agree with God about your sin. It's, it's an, you don't attempt to rationalize and justify it or ignore it. True confession is full ownership and responsibility of your sinful deeds and state. It's also, it doesn't quite come across in translation, in this text it says a sinner, but there's actually in the Greek a definite article, which is the sinner. Lord have mercy on the sinner. It's interesting, he's not, like, he's not so much concerned about all other sinners, but he's concerned about himself as the sinner. He's like, I, I, I need to have business to do with God. I am the sinner. Paul would put it this way in 1 Timothy, uh, or 1 Timothy 1, 15. 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You know, what's interesting in this is that when we are confessing our sin, we're not, concer- we're not concerning ourselves at that time about other people's sin, but our sin with God. Paul is like this tax collector, looking towards his relationship to God first and his sin first rather than others. You know, I'm reminded elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's, it's given in the context of a Pharisee coming up to Jesus and going, Jesus, I know that we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, but I'm not really sure I'm doing that. Or I, I kind of, maybe in his head he knows he hasn't been loving his neighbor as himself. So in Luke's words, he attempts to justify himself by, by doing this, asking Jesus a clarifying question. Who is my, my neighbor? Right? He's trying to justify his, his, uh, his times that he has not loved his neighbor as himself. He's seeking excuses. Oh, okay, I didn't love that person, but he really wasn't my neighbor. So, you know, I've kept the commands of God. See, the human heart is really good at attempting to justify and find excuses when it comes towards our sin. The blame game is probably the oldest and most famous one. It's always somebody else's fault. I'm sure you've never done this if you're a kid. If you're a kid here in the room, blamed your brother or sister for something that you have done. Adam and Eve did this in the Garden of Eden. Adam blamed Eve and indirectly God. Eve blamed the serpent. In the in the in First Samuel, Saul commits a sin and he blames it on the people, and on and on it goes. It's never the person's fault who's done it. It's that other person's fault. You know, the only reason I got angry is because they made me do it. Oh, the only reason I cussed that person out is because they said the wrong thing to me. And so on and on it goes. It's that, it's that justifying nature of the human heart, attempting to excuse our sin. And so the tax collector, he's not attempting, he's not attempting to push it off on somebody else. He's taking full responsibility and ownership of his sins. He's not attempting to excuse it, rationalize it, justify it. He's agreeing with God. What I have done is sin. I am the sinner. So when the Holy Spirit convicts your heart and conscience regarding sin, do you agree with the Spirit? Or do you attempt to argue a case before the Spirit where you attempt to downplay and excuse your sin? See, one of the works of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, is it makes our consciences tender towards sin. And the Spirit allows us to understand that we are our our sin and what it actually is, and we become swift to admit it. It's very rare, I find, to find people that take full ownership and full responsibility for their failures, their mistakes, and their sins. It's rare to find those people, and we see that here in the tax collector. So when is that last time for you that you've been brokenhearted over your sin, that you've wept over it, that you've grieved over that sin? And do you confess it, or are you attempting to rationalize it away? See, confession isn't just a one-time event to become a Christian. It's the lifestyle of a Christian, which is to continuously be repenting of our sins. We confess our sins to turn away from them. It's that initial step in repenting is acknowledging that what I did before God is indeed sin. And remember this promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must all agree with God about our sin. This is going to lead us then to our final aspect concerning this tax collector. Number one, he prays to God. Secondly, he, he knows where he is before God, he, that he's a sinner and that he's confessing his sin. But here's the third thing, is that he petitions for pardon. The tax collector, he knows that he's a sinner before a holy God. He's offended a holy God. He's committed cosmic treason against the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he knows he can't do anything to make up that, the, have, do enough good deeds, you know, and, and have enough penance in order to earn his way to heaven. If there's going to be any hope, it's in God himself. For this reason, he pleads to God for mercy. It's a really interesting word in the Greek. It's the word that means to propitiate. Propitiation is the teaching that God's wrath must be satisfied against sin. So he's saying, God, would you satisfy your wrath against me, the sinner? Would that wrath be appeased and turned away? He's in great distress because he knows God's the only one who can do this. He's the only one that can turn away his wrath against him, the sinner. It reminds me of David in Psalm 51, when David confesses his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed. David says this in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, all sin is ultimately against God and God only. And David's plea is much like the tax collector here in Psalm 51, which is to for God to turn away his wrath and to show him mercy. So how can God do this? Because God is just, right? God is holy. God is just. He sees our sin. How is it then that he can propitiate his wrath against our sin? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Paul writes this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See, Paul explains that Jesus, in shedding his blood on the cross, taking upon himself the full wrath of God against our sin, God's wrath is turned away. It's propitiated. It is satisfied. Jesus took on the full wrath of God that we deserved so that we can be right with God. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus makes this connection between propitiation and the word that he uses regarding the tax collector is to be justified. See, being justified by faith alone is a teaching that's often associated with Paul, but Luke is demonstrating that Paul's not an inventor of doctrine, but rather he's a recipient and expositor of the doctrine from Jesus himself. Jesus notes this with the tax collector, and Paul notes this in Romans 3, that God's wrath is propitiated, and now we can be justified before God. Justified just means that we are declared by God as not guilty and righteous before, before his sight. 
So to kind of sum up our tax collector then, our tax collector is convicted of his sin before a holy God. He knows there's nothing he can do to, be, to make his way right. He confesses that sin, is received by Jesus, and declared justified by Jesus. See, in this tax collector, we see how a person becomes a Christian. Another way to say it, we can find in, in the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. See, there's two ways you could do it. One is, like the tax collector, to cling to Jesus, to know that there's nothing I can do if I'm going to be justified. It has to come from you, Jesus. The other way that you can attempt to be justified is who we saw earlier, the Pharisee. You can attempt to claim to your own righteousness, to bring your own good deeds and say you're better than other people and see if that justifies you before God. See, there's two forms of justification. You could attempt to justify yourself, or you can seek God to justify you. Jesus says that the one who petitions for pardon from God receives God's justification. The one who boasts in his own righteousness and his own deeds receives none. So in whom or in what are you trusting? Are you trusting in your own deeds? Are you trusting in your own self-righteousness? Or are you pleading to God for mercy, to satisfy his wrath against you, the sinner? Only then will you be justified in the sight of God. So we're going to take some time and spend a little bit of time in prayer and just a few moments of quiet because we might all have those, those sins that we need to confess and to, be, uh, and, and to turn over to God. But when I look at this parable, I, I, I see oftentimes a lot of myself in this Pharisee. And I think if we're all honest, a, a lot of times we are, we can often be like this Pharisee. We are attempting to see ourselves as better than we really are instead of confessing our sin and turning away from it. Lord, I do pray that for us this morning that we are swift to repent of our sin when we realize that we have sin. Jesus, I thank you that you took our penalty on the cross for our sin so that we could be right with God. God, I do pray that if anyone here this morning has not yet done so, that they would trust in you this very morning. That they would turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus to rescue them. Lord Jesus, we ask this all in your name. Amen.